Good morning. Good to be with you all this morning. As you know, this is the, uh, the first Sunday of our annual missions conference. Uh, I believe it's Hope Church's 97th annual missions conference. Coming up on 100 here in, in just a few years, so that's a real rich legacy. Uh, we've actually gone past 100 years of supporting missions, but it was 97 years ago that we started doing an, an annual missions conference. I was looking back on the records of that uh, this week as we prepared. Check out the missions brochure. We've got a whole uh, lineup of events to, to, to check out this coming week, so look forward to seeing you and make sure to sign up online for those, uh, whatever you'd like to participate in. Missions in an age of migration. An age of migration. This is the, um, the video that, that we just showed from Wycliffe is one that was sent to us by uh, John and Lucy Tumas, a couple of the missionaries that we support uh, with, with Wycliffe. When I let our missionaries know our theme, I asked them if anybody had a video or something you, or a testimony you could send in that would help people understand what we're talking about when we're talking about global migration and how this impacts the, uh, the mission of God and the mission of our church to go and make disciples. And um, John and Lucy sent me this video, and I thought it did a great job of just introducing what we mean when we talk about an age of migration. People are moving across the face of the earth at an unprecedented rate in society today. The video mentioned a number of the causes of migration. We're not talking about just like illegal immigration that you hear the politicians talk about here and securing borders and things like that. We're talking about things going on around the world causing people to move from their homeland to another place. Things like international students seeking out a better education, uh, going to another country to attend university. That's an example of migration. Things like refugees talked about in the video, people coming from war-torn countries and looking for a safe place to raise their family. That's a form of migration. Things like political Economic migration, people going to another country to take a job, looking for better work, better way of providing for my family. Things like, I mentioned natural disasters. Sometimes you hear of climate refugees, people who are displaced from their communities because of famine or because of flooding or because of earthquakes, other, other natural disasters that cause people to have to uproot their families and go somewhere else. So our missionaries that join us this week are going to be helping us think about how these forces of migration impact their work. People aren't just migrating to the U.S., they're migrating around the world. Bruce McAtee is going to talk about ministering to refugees and asylum seekers in the camps in Greece that they work at. Leroy Zumax is going to be talking about the people he encounters in the prisons in France who are often not French natives. Migration impacts the work of God on a, on a profound basis in today's day and age. And so that's what we hope to explore this week in our missions conference. Migration can be a scary thing. Migration can cause uncertainty. Uncertainty for, for anybody, but also uncertainty to the people of God. We might, we might wonder how 
how might God expect us to respond as, he, as his people, as we watch these events unfold on the political scene, as we watch war and famine and earthquake and disasters? These are no surprise to God. He knows about them. But how are we supposed to respond? How are we supposed to respond when a strange-looking family moves in across the street from me? And they might not even speak my language. What do I do? What's my role in that situation? How am I supposed to respond if my family's uprooted and forced to move? What is it like for these people that are influenced? Many of them are believers. And what does that mean for their faith? These are some of the questions we're forced to wrestle with when we watch the forces of global migration impact lives in the world today. Impacting everyone. Impacting churches. Impacting our church and our community here in St. Louis. The question that this raises is how should believers respond when these geopolitical events seem to threaten the plans of God? And we say, hey, God, I didn't think that's what you were going to do. Wait, God, I'm not sure what this means for my family. Wait, this is kind of changing my community. How should believers respond when these events call into question what God's doing, his goodwill? His purposes for our lives, for our family, for our communities, for our nation. That's the question that the passage we look at uh, this morning is going to help us wrestle through a little bit. Um, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 15 this morning. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 15. Before we go there, uh, I want to introduce the, the backstory a little bit to the, uh, the, the, the story we're going to encounter in chapter 15. So Genesis 15, as you notice, you open it up. It's very close to the, the very beginning of your Bible. We're only 15 chapters into the eternal plan of God as it's revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. Uh, we've been through Genesis 1 and 2 where we see God creating the world and uh, establishing humanity on the earth in a good and perfect paradise where we could enjoy him and enjoy the fruits of, of his creation forever. We saw the fall in Genesis 3 where men and women decided to rebel against God, to seek their own way, and that, that relationship with him was broken. And ever since then, chapter 4 all the way up to chapter 11, there's been this downward spiral of humanity. Things just getting worse and worse and worse. Curse after curse. Um, little, little snippets of, of hope here and there with people like Noah, who was found righteous. And, and, um, but by and large, a, uh, a really dreary outlook for uh, God's good creation. What is God going to do? And then in Genesis chapter 12, God broke through all the noise and he singled out one man in his family, a man named Abram, and made a promise to Abram. said, Abram, I want you to leave your land and go to the land I'm going to show you because I'm going to give you that land and I'm going to give you a family to populate that land and I am going to use you and your family to bless all the rest of the world. It's through you, Abram, that I am going to fix this downward spiral that humanity finds itself in. It's through you, Abram, and your family that I'm going to work my plan of redemption. So that took us up to chapter 12. Now in the ensuing chapters, uh, there, there, there's been some uncertainty for Abram. 
Uh, he's gone down to Egypt. Uh, he, 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 he went there as a, as a refugee for a while when things got bad where he was. He came back. Uh, he split ways with his nephew Lot. And then his nephew Lot got kidnapped by the kings of the north. And so Abram gets a coalition together and goes and rescues his, his nephew from uh, this, 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 this battle of five armies of five different kings that had confederated against Lot and taken him, taken him captive. So Abram's just been through all of that. And that's where we encounter Abram in Genesis chapter 15. So let's enter into the story here. Uh, I, I'm going to tell you the story orally. If you were in the Sunday school class before, we, we watched a video on oral Bible translation and how translators learn the story and then they learn to retell it uh, in their own language. So this is an example I'm, uh, 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 of telling the story. You can follow along if you're in your Bible if you'd like, or you can just follow along with me as I tell you the story. After all these things had happened, Yahweh said, to Abram, he appeared to him in a vision and said, Abram, don't be afraid. I am your shield, and you're going to receive a great reward. Abram replied, Oh, Yahweh, my God, what can you really give me? Because I don't have an heir. And this person, Eliezer of Damascus, is set to inherit my household one day. Abram repeated, you have not given me a son. So everything I own is going to go on to this, this servant in my house. Yahweh replied, This man will not be your heir. Your own son will be your heir. And Yahweh took Abram outside. And he said to Abram, Look at the stars. See if you can count them. If you can number the stars, then you will know the number of your offspring one day. And Abram believed Yahweh. And Yahweh considered Abram to be in right relationship with him as a result. And Yahweh said, I am Yahweh who has taken you out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans and has brought you to this land so that you might Possess it. Abram said, Oh, Yahweh my God, how can I really know that I'm going to possess it? And so Yahweh said, Bring me, bring me a heifer and a goat and a ram, all three years old, along with a pigeon and a dove. And so Abram went. He gathered the animals. He slaughtered them. And he divided them in, in two and arranged each half of the animal carcass, one across from the other. Except for the, the, the birds. He did not divide the birds. And then Abram waited and chased away the, the birds of prey as they came down to feast on these animal carcasses. And as it was getting dark, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And a dreadful darkness descended and Yahweh said, Know for certain, your offspring will live in a land that is not their own, as sojourners, as refugees, for 400 years. They will be enslaved and oppressed. But 
I will judge the nation that oppresses them, and they will go out with many possessions. You yourself will die peacefully at a ripe old age, then will rest with your fathers. And in the fourth generation, I will bring them back to this land. This is because the sins of the Amorites have not yet reached their full measure against me. And when it was dark, a flaming torch and a smoking fire pot appeared and passed between the animal carcasses. On that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram, saying, I give this land to your offspring as a possession. Everything from the brook of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. So, let's talk about what's happening in this passage, in this story, a little bit. There's a lot going on here, a lot that we can unpack, and we'll hit some of the highlights and zero in on some of the details, then, that are relevant to our theme, Missions in an Age of Migration. What's going on here? We're told that this happens after these things. So everything I just kind of summarized for you. you know, God's made this promise to Abram to give him a great nation and to give him this land. But since then, he's been kind of waiting and things have not really, really started to un unfold yet. And so when we encounter Abram in the beginning of the, of the story, we see that Abram is questioning you know, God appears to him in a vision and says, Abram, I am your shield. You're, you'll receive a great reward. But Abram's not so sure, is he? He asks God two questions. Two questions. Two points of, of doubt, we might say, that have crept in as Abram's been waiting for God to fulfill this promise. First of all, he questions God. Are you really going to give me a, an heir, a great nation? Right now, everything I own is set to go go and be passed on to this, this servant of my household. Probably somebody Abram trusts, but not quite the same as, as, as your estate passing on to your own flesh and blood one day. So he asks Yahweh, Yahweh, you haven't given me a son, so everything I own is going to this guy. And in response to each of Abram's questions, Yahweh gives a sign and a promise. So as Abram wrestles with this lack of progeny here, he has no heir. What does Yahweh do? He gives him a sign, something to confirm what he's saying here. He takes Abram outside. You can imagine Abram, you know, he's a tent dweller. So uh, pulling back the flap of the tent and Abram goes outside, sits under the stars, no artificial light. This is the deep, uh, deep wilderness um, look toward heaven and number the stars. See if you can count them. So shall your offspring be. And what's Abram's response? We're told that he believes Yahweh. This is important. 
This, this, this passage actually comes up three times in the New Testament as uh, Paul in particular wrestles with the, the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. As Paul's trying to get the, uh, the Jewish believers of the New Testament times to understand people aren't saved by works, he points to this instant as the moment of Abram's justification before God. As the moment Abram went from being in wrong relationship with God to being in right relationship with God. We call that righteousness. It was in this moment that Abram was declared righteous by God. Notice, Abram hasn't done anything to earn this. It's he believed God's promise, and as a result, he's counted as righteous. Abram hasn't offered any sacrifices. He hasn't followed any laws. There's no law of Moses for him to even follow yet. So people in the Old Testament were not saved by following God's laws any more than people today are. We're not saved by being good and following all the rules. We're counted righteous on the basis of our faith, just like Abram. An important theological truth in this passage. So... Um, we could talk a long time about that, but that's not our real topic today. But I, I, I got to mention it because it's so crucial. It comes out in this passage. So, so he doubts whether God's promise will really come true. God gives him this wonderful vision of the stars in the heavens, and he believes God. But then Abram has a second question. Back in his tent, as he wrestles with this, this promise, he says, but, but God... How can I know that I'm really going to possess this land that you've promised to give me? Because there's a lot of other people living here, and they don't really like me very much. You can imagine what's going on in his mind. We just, in chapter, um, chapter 14, read about the battle he had against the five kings to rescue his nephew Lot. Uh, you know, things aren't really going splendidly for Abram in this, in this new land. How do I know that this is really going to be my land one day? And again, Yahweh responds with a sign. What does he do? He sends Abram out to collect these, these five different types of animals. Um, and by the way, you've got to understand, this probably took Abram a long time. Because notice, it, it, it was nighttime. They're out under the stars. Then God says, Abram, go get these animals. And then by dusk the next day, Abram has collected the animals. He's gathered them. He's slaughtered them. I mean, Abram's a pastoralist. He understands this kind of stuff takes a long time to butcher an animal. And he's got, he's got what? A cow, a goat, a ram, and then two, uh, two, 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 two birds, a dove and a pigeon. So he's got his work cut out for him. Takes him the better part of the day. And by the end of the day, the sun is setting, and Abram, um, Abram separates the animal carcasses, and he, he makes a row of dead animals. Kind of, kind of gross, but they've been cut in half, and so you can imagine um, half the carcasses here, half the carcasses here, and a path between them. The birds arranged one on each side of the path as well. And Yahweh appears in he, he takes the form of this this um, 
smoking fire pot and a torch and passes through the animal carcasses. And we're like, what is going on here? This is just weird. I don't get this. This is, this is crazy. Why, uh, why is this happening? You've got to understand, God is coming to Abram at his level. He's using a form that Abram understands. This is a type, as best we can tell, a, a type of covenant or treaty that the people of Old Testament times were very familiar with. For us, the equivalent today would be, Abram, go draw up a contract and I'll sign on the dotted line. And so Abram goes and hires his lawyer, gets his legal team, gets the contract all signed up, and, and Yahweh appears in the form of a pen and, and signs on the dotted line. But that's not how things worked in Abram's day. We, we're, we're given some insight into this ceremony in Jeremiah 34, 18, where, where God talks about a covenant again. And he talks about people who had entered into a covenant with him. He's not talking about Abram, and this, this is different, but the situation kind of transfers. He says, As for those who disobeyed my covenant, not keeping the terms of the covenant before me, I will treat them like the calf they cut in two in order to pass between its pieces. So this, this passage from Jeremiah gives us insight to the meaning of Genesis 15 when Abram arranges these animal parts and makes a path between the pieces. What is Yahweh saying as he passes through these animal pieces? If I don't keep my end of the bargain to give you this land then somebody might as well treat me like this, like these animals. Now, normally the expectation might be for Abram to rise up and walk through as well. But what's Abram doing here? He's fast asleep. This is a one-sided agreement where the God of the universe promises to unconditionally give Abram this land for his family to possess. There's nothing that Abram has to do to make that happen Yahweh is saying, if I don't follow through, may this happen to me, which we know is not even conceivably possible. It's a logical contradiction for the God of the universe to be destroyed and torn in two. So he swears on his own existence that this will happen. Your family will receive this land. So, Abram's two points of doubt, his two questions are answered. Your children will number like the stars of the heavens. And I will give you this land because I have entered into a binding legal contract to do so using the forms that you're familiar with. God always appears to, you know, he meets people on their, their own terms. He meets people, he's not saying that we today should use this same form of agreement. No, he's, he's meeting Abram with something that Abram can understand. Um, appearing in forms that are common to people in Abram's day involved in these kinds of ceremonies. And so, um, in responding to Abram's doubts, Yahweh gives some unique insight into his deeper plans, his long-range scope. And in his reply to Abram, as he passes through these animal carcasses, he he gives a little bit of kind of a prophetic prediction, doesn't he? That goes 400 years or four generations into the future of what, how this is all going to unfold. 
We can understand how Abram's wrestling because as God gives insight, it's not really going to come to fruition fully until 400 years later. But it will surely happen. And it's in this prophetic prediction that we receive some really important uh, theological truths about how God deals with the nations of the world, our responsibility in all of that by implication from the New Testament Great Commission, that gives insight to our, our theme this week, missions in an age of migration. Notice how many different nations are mentioned in this passage, even by name or by description. There are 13 nations mentioned in Genesis 15. We're told, first of all, Israel, obviously. Not mentioned by name. The name Israel has not been uh, conceived of yet, because this is Abram. Um, but we're told Abram's seed, Abram's offspring, will be a great nation, which we know later becomes Israel. There is the land of the Chaldeans, where God has brought Abram from, his homeland. This is modern-day Iraq. There's Egypt, also not mentioned by name, but it's the land that is not their own. This will be the land where they are suffering and afflicted for 400 years. There's these people, the Amorites. God says they're going to go down to Egypt because the Amorites have not yet filled up their full measure of sin against me. They still have some, some time on their clock. So I'm going to send you to Egypt for 400 years while their time expires, and then it's your turn. And then we have nine other Canaanite nations mentioned at the end of the passage in addition to the Amorites. So 13 different nations mentioned here if we count them up. And God gives insight into how these nations rise and fall and how global migration all plays into his divine plan to redeem the nations and bring them into relationship with himself. Let's consider some of the migration and displacement that happens in this passage. We've got Abram's migration from Ur, right? So here's a map of the ancient Near East, uh, what we would call the Middle East today. Uh, Abram, we understood, stand, came from the land of Ur, um, modern-day Iraq. He went all the way up the Fertile Crescent and came down into the Promised Land, the land of Canaan. That's a big, that's a long way for somebody to go and bring all their herds and flocks. We know this took the better part of a, a generation for Abram to make this whole journey. He stayed in the land of Haran for a while. But, um, but Abram himself has experienced being uprooted and going forth in faith to a land that God has promised. So, so there's that kind of migration happening. Abram following God to the land. But he gets there, and there's already people there, and they kind of like their land, and they don't like this guy coming in. So that's kind of what Abram's wrestling with now. How do I know I'm going to get this land? Well, Yahweh says, well, the migration's not, not finished yet, Abram. Guess what's going to happen to your descendants? They're going to go down into a land that is not their own, and they'll live there for 400 years as refugees. Now, at this point in Genesis, we don't know how that's going to unfold. But by the time we get to Genesis chapter 50, where is the family of Abram? 
They've gone down to Egypt. God used Joseph, who went to, jo- to Egypt as a slave. Joseph kind of worked up the ranks of the Egyptian, um, Egyptian society and became a powerful figure with God kind of orchestrating things in the background. And then this, this famine happens and Abram's family is forced to leave their land of promise and go to Egypt to find food. They're climate refugees, aren't they? They've been displaced as this famine comes upon the land and they can't grow enough food. So they go and look for refuge in Egypt. And it starts out pretty well for them. They have a good home there. They're given a good place to raise their, their, um, their, their, their herds. But eventually we know things turn for the worse. And the Egyptians begin impressing and enslaving the Israelite people and uh, uh, forcing them into slave labor. But God says it's not done yet. After four generations, I will judge Egypt. So another instance of God judging one of the nations of the world in order to work out his redemptive purposes, bring the Israelites out of Egypt and back to the land of promise. And why is it that God says he's he's implementing this this long-term delay in the rise and fall of nations. Why not just give Abram the land of promise now? God gives us the reason. He says, the Amorites, the Amorites have not yet completed their full measure of sin against me. This is important theological truth as well. You see, every nation has a sort of tank or dial of how much time do they have left on God's timeline. And it has to do with their own, uh, their own behavior as a nation, their own sense of righteousness and justice within the nation. How do they treat their people and the people around them? And what God's saying here to Abram is, it's not time for you to take this land yet because the Amorites, the Amorites still have a little time on their clock. I'm not ready to, to vanquish them yet. That time will come. It's coming quickly. But it's not time yet. You see, God has a timeline for each nation of the world. And we see that as the pages of Scripture unfold. We'll see that. We'll talk about that more a little bit. But then at the end, God gives this this, uh, list of all the Amorites. The Amorites is often used as kind of a placeholder for all of the smaller nations of the promised land. They do, uh, the biblical writers do that with both the Amorites and the Canaanites. They'll often use either one of those terms to refer a blanket statement to the people who lived in the promised land before God brought the Israelites. And so God's saying, this will be their land, but not yet, because it's not time. It's not time to judge these nations. God is a gracious and long-suffering God. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all shall come to repentance. And so he is giving them the full allotment of their time. Until they have, um, they have filled up that measure of sin, injustice, and he's ready to hand the land off to somebody else. So we have in this passage some great insight to how God uses migrations, movement, displacement of peoples across the globe to bring about his good purposes. And we can go back to the question we asked at the beginning. How should believers respond when geopolitical events seem to threaten the plans of God? 
Well, God's people can understand geopolitical events as opportunities for God to unfold his divine plan for the nations. Because the rise, the movement, and the fall of nations is in his hands. The Chaldeans, the Amorites, the Egyptians, the Israelites, and all the other nine nations, the ites that are mentioned in this passage. God's sovereign behind all of them, and he has a time and a plan for each of them. The rise, the movement, and fall of nations is in the hands of God, and his people can trust his sovereign purposes in the ever-changing tides of global politics. And that's as true today as it was 4,000 years ago. God is still in control of the nations, and he is still orchestrating the movements of peoples according to his will for his purposes to bring about redemption. And so... What do we do with this? A few important truths to take home. A few important points of application. One, let's remember every nation receives a certain measure of grace in God's cosmic plan and timeline. Every nation has its own time and place within his plan. And we're part of a nation, aren't we? The United States some of us may have come from other nations, even experienced migration ourselves, but we all have our homeland and we all have the land we live in right now and we can understand that God blesses nations at certain times for certain purposes, but we should also understand that this blessing is not permanent on any nation. Every nation has a certain amount of time and when that nation's just injustices outweigh its justice, God says, time's up. It's like the scales, and where each nation is constantly piling either justice or injustice on one side or the other. Now, this is not how God handles individuals, by the way. No, it's not a scale of good works and bad works, and, but on a national scene, that's how God deals with the nations. Justice or injustice. And when you tip too far, it's time to go. So where are we? Where is our nation? Something to think about. But we can all affirm right now that God has blessed our nation immensely. We are living in a time of great prosperity for our, our nation here in the United States. And as believers, we need to praise God for that and acknowledge that he has given us this blessing for a reason. How are we as believers in the wealthiest nation on earth going to steward those resources for his kingdom purposes? That's the challenge to you this week. You're going to hear about the faith promise offering. This is the tool that Hope Church uses to channel our resources to those who are in the trenches proclaiming the gospel around the world. Look in the pew in front of you and you should find a faith promise commitment card. You can take that home now and pray about it, or you can leave it there until next week. But at the end of the service next week, we're going to ask for a commitment, not between you and Hope Church. Nobody's going to call you up and say, hey, uh, we see that you didn't, you didn't fulfill your commitment. No, this is between you and God of how is God challenging you to steward your resources 
for the proclamation of the gospel among the nations. So think this week about how you can step out in faith and say, God, I want to give this amount towards missions this year. You may not know how you'll do it. You may need to trust God to provide that for you, but by writing it on the card, you're saying, I am going to trust you, God, to provide so that I can fulfill this commitment. This is what the missions committee will then use to determine how many missionaries can we support? Can we take on any new? We're having two more missionaries retire this year from their service on the mission field that we know of. And we're needing to raise up another generation of missionaries to send out. And we can only do that as we come together as God's people saying, He has blessed us right now. Our nation is in a time of blessing and this is how we can steward those resources to see His will take place. So every nation receives a certain measure of grace. Let's not squander the opportunity that He's given us to be a light for Him among the other nations of the world. Second important theological truth to take home, we can trust God's timing, can't we? We can trust God's timing. Abram wasn't sure. Things, God had made a promise to him in Genesis 12, and things seemed to be going for, you know, kind of from bad to worse for him. He's almost going to die. He has no son yet. He's going to war against the kings of this land that God has taken him into. And so he's wrestling. He's struggling. Abram's wrestling with God's timing. In God's speaking to him, we see that the, the Israelites themselves are going to wrestle with God's timing, aren't they? They're going to go down and live in Egypt for 400 years as slaves and say, God, what are you doing? You made a promise to Abram and to Isaac and Jacob, and here we are working as slaves under the, 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 the power of foreign tyrants. Maybe you're in a place where you're, you're, you're waiting for God's timing. Uh, personally, this can be hard as you wait for that job to come through. I've been there applying for jobs and wondering how God's going to provide from uh, one month to the next, but he, he comes through. You can wait for God's timing as well. And that's why we call it faith promise, right? Because you don't know that you're going to have those funds, but you, you, you step out in faith. And you can apply that to any realm of your life, not just missions, but the, the, the focus this week is, is missions. But uh, maybe you're in a hard time, just like the Israelites were waiting in Egypt, and you're like, God, I don't know how I could ever be a witness for you among the nations. I'm just trying to eke out an existence here, day-to-day -day life in St. Louis. But you can trust in God's timing. What did God say to Abram? Do not fear. I am your shield, right? Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. And he's your shield too. He will protect you. He will provide for you. He will bring about events in your life to work together according to his will, just like he did for Abram, just like he did for the people of Israel that we see in this passage. Later on, if we follow the scope of uh, redemptive history with the people of Israel, we see that the same thing happened with the Israelites, didn't they? That those scales of justice or injustice tipped, tip, 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 tip until they were, they were following the same sins of the Amorites before them. And after several hundred years go by of um, poor rulers, bad kings, idolatry, God says, okay, 
Time's up for you too now, Israel. You don't get to live in the land. And the Babylonians come in and swoop down and take the Israelites out. And they're exiled in a foreign country again. No longer Egypt. Now they're in Babylon. But what does God say to the, the, the refugees in Babylon? He tells them, Seek the welfare of the city. Jeremiah 29, 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Work for the good of the city that I've put you in this foreign city where I've planted you. Work for the good of this city and pray to God on its behalf because in its welfare you will find your own welfare. God says, wait where I've put you. Wait for me. Work and do good in the situation I've put you in. Don't just spend your life waiting for for what you want to have happen next. Glorify God in the situation you're in now and wait and see what he does. Maybe he'll come through tomorrow. Maybe it'll take 400 years, but he'll come through. And we can trust him. Do not fear. We can trust God's timing. Last theological truth to take home here is that God is behind the movement of peoples and nations. God is behind the movement of peoples and nations. So as we go back to our question at the beginning, looking at uh, our communities changing, uh, at uh, disasters happening around the world, displacing people, nations worldwide are experiencing demographic transformation, migration. And it doesn't have to be a bad and scary thing. Okay? God uses this to bring about his purposes. God uses us, as we've seen in the video here, to bring people into closer proximity of the gospel. There are languages receiving access to scripture now that they could never have had access to scripture if they had stayed in their home country of Eritrea, like we saw at the beginning, because you can't go into Eritrea and translate the Bible. But by displacing Eritreans into Ethiopia and into the United States. They have opportunity to translate the Bible and receive the support and empowerment they need to make God's word available for people in their home country. And this happens in many different examples, not just with Bible translation, churches being planted by International students who come to study in the U.S., they meet and are adopted by a Christian family. They receive the gospel and they go home to a place we could never go to as missionaries and tell their families and establish churches. God uses these events, these movements and migrations of people to bring the nations into relationship with himself. I think I've told you before about our neighbors Katie and I had across the street when we were leaving in Shirley Braun's old house on Tree 4 over here. Uh, it was around the time when Eli was born. Uh, we had a, 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 a vacant house across the street from us, and one day uh, these strange-looking people moved in. Ladies wearing this headscarf and these really dark sunglasses, and um, guy didn't look like me. They could barely speak English. Uh, but I worked up the courage to go across the street and introduce myself and welcome them to the neighborhood. Turns out they were Iraqi refugees. He had been helping the uh, U.S. forces in Baghdad, and then, and then um, people started threatening him and his family for working as a translator for the U.S. soldiers, and so he qualified as a refugee to move to St. Louis, Missouri. And here he is, just trying to figure out what to do with his family. His wife is 
severely depressed and going blind. He has a little girl who's being sent into the Ferguson Florissant School District and encountering um, all sorts of things there, trying to work through the red tape, um, things like occupancy permits and all this kind of thing that I had the opportunity just to be a friend, to be somebody he could talk to. Turns out he was a good mechanic and he helped me fix my car and we built this great friendship. Eventually, we both moved around the same time out of the neighborhood, and I lost touch with him. But that's an example of how God brings people we would never imagine into our own sphere of influence, and we can be missionaries crossing those cultural barriers in our own community just by reaching out, by showing love. How could God be expanding your sphere of influence through this time of migration of people coming into our country from places around the world? Some practical things you could do to pursue this. There are a number of local ministries serving migrant peoples here in St. Louis. And I just want to give you a list to check out if this piques your interest. All Nations St. Louis. Matt Clark is coming Wednesday night to talk to our, our student ministry. And anyone who's interested in hearing from Matt is, uh, is welcome as well. But he has founded this this ministry called All Nations St. Louis, focused on mobilizing churches to minister to refugees in their neighborhood. He could put you in touch. He could put you to work. He could put our church to work. We could invite him into our church and say, we want to uh, be a church that welcomes refugees, and he could help us adopt a family and, and do that if we as a church decided we wanted something like that. The Good Neighbor Initiative. This is, this is uh, an initiative... Um, pioneered by the uh, Metro Baptist Association, but we don't have to be Baptist to partner with them. But they're doing the same thing, part taking a refugee family and partnering them with a Christian family that just says, I want to be a good neighbor to these people that God is bringing into our community. I want to build a friendship and maybe one day share the gospel with them. I want to be a light in my community through the Good Neighbor Initiative. There's Oasis International. This is a refugee center down in the, um, the Bevo Mill neighborhood of, of St. Louis. They've got a farm over in Illinois where they take refugees to be able to, um, to, 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 to practice gardening. And they've got a number of different ministries along these lines, but they depend on volunteers. People like you and me from churches that say, hey, I'd like to help. That's another opportunity. International Students Incorporated. You may see uh, John Weir here from ISI every now and then. He'll kind of sit back behind Brian and Denise in that area, and he'll usually have some international students from UMSL or from WashU with him. Go up and introduce yourself. Be a friend to these families that, 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 that God brings into our own church through International Students Incorporated. We support Solomon and Ruby Kendegore with ISI as a church. And we could partner with them in different ways too. But there are all sorts of opportunities for us to enter into God's missionary work right here in our community by reaching out to people on the move. So God's covenant with Abram reminds us that from the very beginning, his plan to draw the nations to himself has involved the mass migration of people and nations. This has often been very hard Great hardship and suffering. But as God's people, we need to not fear these changes as they happen around us. 
or let them cause us to doubt God and his timing and his plans. Instead, let us all be ready to step up to the challenges and opportunities that are presented as God orchestrates these movements and mass migrations across the world. We find our own nation in a season of plenty. So let's not hesitate to use these resources for his kingdom work. And as God brings these once distant peoples, some of them from unreached people groups, right into our community here, let's be quick to welcome them in his name and to offer friendship and the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your heart for the nations. Father, we thank you for your love for all people. We thank you for your plan that will not fail, though things may look doubtful to us at times, just as they did for Abram. May we cling to you in trust and be ever ready to be good stewards of the resources you give us, but also to go ourselves, be that helping hand, that um, friend in a time of need, that that voice that communicates the good news of salvation when people are ready to hear it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.